Hello friends, this is Kara and we are in Le Vital Core Salon. I'm your host and salonaire, and each episode, my job, which I take pretty seriously, is to introduce you to a modern woman leaving her unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout stop her. If you've ever experienced a moral hangover from work, if you believe being in service to something regenerative and larger than yourself is important, and if you think being feminine and being in business don't have to be mutually exclusive, then I have an episode for you. I can't wait for you to meet today's guest, Megan Offner of New York Heartwoods. Megan is a friend and has been truly instrumental in helping me feel more connected to my new-ish home in the Hudson Valley. Craig and I didn't know anybody when we moved here, and I had the good fortune to meet Megan early on. And because of her kindness, I have gotten to meet so many smart, cool, and interesting people here in the Hudson Valley, here in the Catskills. Let me tell you a little bit about Megan. Megan believes that business can be a force for good and that good design fosters a more resilient future. She is the owner and co-founder of New York Heartwoods, a Kingston-based business that makes furniture to grow trees. They use wood milled from storm-fallen and urban trees that would otherwise be landfilled, chipped, or burned. And by doing this, she's helping to conserve forest, reduce waste, reduce carbon emissions, and so much more. And in fact, 5% of New York Heartwoods profits go back into forest management and tree planning initiatives to continue that cycle all over again. We're going to learn more about Megan. We're going to learn about the work at New York Heartwoods and Megan's philosophy on doing good work. This podcast is also a little unique. Besides the live interview I did with Nicole Atkins right after her set at South by Southwest, this is only the second episode to be recorded live. Megan and I got to hang out at Radio Kingston. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, Ida, for setting up the space for us to do this in person. So it's super unique. And another fun fact about this episode is later on in the episode, you will hear a punk washer machine that must have been on the adjacent wall of the studio that decides to make an appearance and then launch into its spin cycle. Just another day in the life of creating the Vital Core Salon. Before we dive into the interview with Megan, where are you right now? I'm serious. Are you commuting? Are you working out? Are you waiting to catch a plane? Are you hiding from your partner or your kids? Wherever you are, I'm stoked you're also hanging out with Megan and me. Is there someone else that you think should be chilling with us too? If you think of one person you know during this podcast, please share it with them. Most podcast apps all have a share button, and it only takes a couple of seconds, but significantly helps this podcast grow and stay free for all of you. I really appreciate your help. Voila, here's the conversation with Megan. Hey, Megan, welcome to Levital Core Salon. Hi, Kara. Thanks for having me. 
This is so exciting <laughs> recording in person today. I know. It's so nice to see your face. I don't see it often enough. As Megan and I sit in the makeout closet, <laughs> basically at Radio, at Radio Kingston. Kingston. Coming to you live. <laughs> so there's probably going to be some giggles because I am not used to recording with anyone in person. I'm usually just looking at a wall or notes or like garage band or something. So this is wild <laughs> today. But I want to I want to dive in with what you're doing and who you are. And you're the owner and co-founder of New York Heartwoods, which is a social enterprise that transforms urban and storm down trees into gorgeous custom furniture and accessories. You and I are obviously friends. People can probably tell already <laughs> just by the giggles happening. And I've also spent a ton of time benevolently stalking you. <laughs> can we start with what you're sourcing for wood and why that matters well we're sourcing wood from fallen and urban hudson valley trees uh, within 70 miles of our shop i originally started the company as a sustainable mill that sells lumber and live edge slabs and people kept asking me to make things. So uh, now we're a furniture company. So there have been several pivots. Spoken like a true entrepreneur. <laughs> From just solely providing material to doing custom fabrication and then uh, launching our first furniture line last year. Around 2008, I was working in the city as a set designer and prop stylist and building things that ended up in the dumpster at the end of the day or at the end of the week. And I had this moral crisis realizing that essentially trees were being cut down so I could build this thing that was so ephemeral um, to sell something. It was mostly fashion and advertising, photo shoots. Okay. And I'm not a big consumer. Um, I grew up in Montana around a lot of clear cuts. And so I have this very personal experience of where wood comes from. And the moral hangover of my work <laughs> was getting way too intense. And I, what kind of sets are you talking about? Are these like you were building out like fake rooms? Like what was fake rooms, fake walls? Um, yeah, fake rooms, uh, essentially. <laughs> Sometimes the the you know you just rent flats and then build out the the details, but um, you know some were more wasteful than others. But it could be the equivalent of an entire room or several, depending wow. on what okay. we were working on. So there's a lot of waste. Like a dumpster rolls up at the end of this, and you're just piling everything in. Right. And everything is so customized, and the logistics of transportation and storage in New York City are, <laughs> you can imagine, at best. challenging. So there was, you know, at first I was trying to figure out a way to redirect a lot of it. Now there are systems in place and uh, organizations in New York that do more of that. But, you know, when I was in the early to mid-aughts, Mm -hmm. um, there just there weren't very many options. There were no options. Okay. <laughs> and so I started just taking classes, not knowing what I did want to do, but knowing what I didn't. <laughs> the painful process of trial and elimination. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I started studying permaculture and sustainable building and design. I want to pause you here 
For the listeners who don't know what permaculture is, can you give like the quickie, need not be academic kind of <laughs> definition? Sure. I mean, it's been a, a long time since I've actually worked in like with permaculture principles, but in a nutshell, there are systems that allow humans to co-create with nature in where there is no such thing really as waste are the byproducts of the things that we we build and create are able to be used or absorbed back into the system. Many people approach it as a food-based system. There's edible forest gardens and herb spirals <laughs> and gotcha. you know um, it's a it can be a way of co-planting so that food thrives but I learned it in New York City and it you know it can be rainwater collection systems it can be it's just essentially like how can you live your life in a way that is uh, regenerative okay got it and with those principles those principles inspired what I'm doing but what I'm doing now is not actually permaculture per se. But, but that's, that's where you got your start. So basically you started being interested in the topic and that's what kind of led mm -hmm. you down that path. Exactly. It opened my eyes to the possibility of having a livelihood and a way of living that was regenerative. And then it became, well, what can I do as my livelihood that could also be regenerative, that could create solutions? And uh, after studying permaculture, I studied sustainable building and design at Yestermoro. It's a design build school in Vermont, which I highly recommend if anybody out there <laughs> wants to um, build anything. Like they have everything from canoe building to root cellars to natural plasters and home building. It's it's it was That's a, quite a spectrum of things to build. <laughs> it is. But Yestermorrow was created by architects that were concerned that architecture students were no longer being taught how to actually build things. It was purely design-based, and you don't really have a comprehension of how to build something or, or how something should be built unless you have hands-on experience doing it yourself. Okay. So it's a place where anyone can go to learn to design and build a, mul a multitude of things. And then from there... I had some friends working on permaculture projects at an ashram upstate, and they were going to start doing some natural building. And I was invited to go and just work for room and board on <laughs> some weekends. <laughs> but uh, they had 40 acres of forest, and the person who had managed it for f 40 years, uh, Dave Washburn, uh, was my friend's friend's father, and he became a mentor and a teacher, and I reconnected to trees and my love of trees and love of forests after living in the city for 10 years. Yeah, because you've sort of sailed on two ends of the spectrum, right? Like, you grew up in Montana, and then you're living and working in New York City, which <laughs> I can't think of maybe Antarctica as, like, somewhere else that would be, like, equally different. Well, I grew up in a college town. It wasn't like <laughs> total, yeah, it wasn't. Um, You're not mountain people. I'm not mountain people. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's plenty of mountain people there, but I was not mountain people. I was a, a punk rock slash hippie in a college <laughs> town. <laughs> so during that time, Dave invited a group of us to go to Wisconsin to study with a man who has a business 
called Timber Green Forestry. And he, in the Menominee Native American tradition, harvests one tree per acre per year, or his worst trees first, uh, which are the dying and diseased trees, and thereby improving the health of his forest, takes the wood from those trees and makes hardwood flooring. The scraps from that end up in his wood stove or are made into small items that he sells on Etsy. So there's essentially zero waste. It's a win-win, you know, with nature. It's a co-creative enterprise with nature. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, I was like, this is, this is it. This is what I want to do. And um, I wasn't sure how, but I just, you know, like you have those moments where you just feel it with every cell of your body. And I I remember declaring that, and two weeks later, as luck would have it, I was introduced to someone who had a portable mill that they weren't using, uh, and uh, I got to know he and his wife. It was uh, Jed Bark of Bark Frameworks. He is a fine art framer in New York City, and he had bought the the mill to use his own trees for his business. Oh, wow. But he's so successful in what he does that there was just no, no time. time to <laughs> but he, you know, he's recently retired, but he was at the at, towards the end of his career and really enjoys mentoring people. So after six months of building up trust and learning how to use the mill, I moved upstate and started my business on his land. Wow. How did you come in contact with him? Was it purely happenstance or... So the ashram where I met Dave uh, is in Harriman, and about 30 minutes from there is Warwick, New York. He was asked by a friend to come over and do some consulting with a community garden project, and Dave's son was looking for land to farm. There's a lot of farmland around Warwick, and this woman suggested that he meet Jed Bark as he was looking for a farmer, you know, for the tax credits and just so that the land was utilized. Dave and his son went over to meet Jed. Um, Jed and Dave's son did not get along, but but, uh, Dave and Jed quickly (laughs) hit it off and started talking about this mill. And then shortly thereafter, Dave broke the news that we, you know, we had just come back from learning how to mill wood and um, had ideas to start this enterprise, and then he just happened to meet the person who had what we needed to start this business. And these are not like your everyday things. Like this isn't like, oh, do you happen to have a hammer? It's like, do you have a portable <laughs> mill? This big expensive piece and a of tractor. equipment <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and farmland, right? And we had a pickup truck donated to us. Like all of these pieces just started to come in. Like wow, all of these pieces started to fall into place. And as luck would have it, I also moved up to Warwick the weekend of Hurricane Irene. <laughs> so, it's, it's like, is that it? It's a good thing for you, but like, it's so like you celebrate storms in a weird sort of way now, right? Like, right. Because for you, it's a, a time of harvest and plenty right. after a storm rips through. Yeah. So my our first pivot was going from the model where we were going to be taking down dying and diseased trees and doing forest management to going around the neighborhood and like helping out landowners by taking these trees that would cost them money to dispose of. 
and I quickly became known as the log lady. <laughs> <laughs> Which has so many funky connotations. I know. Like outside of wood and wood and products. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, there were just thousands of logs within five miles of the mill. So we gathered as many as we could and um, the learning curve was intense. It was not only learning how to mill wood, but transport of these logs like how to air dry it how to kiln dry it um you know learning about the markets like i didn't come from a background knowing anything about the wood products industry i studied art history and french in college (laughs) 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 and but i've always loved design and the natural world and i have a passion you know for trees and I have a passion for resourcefulness and for creating solutions for communities, for minimizing waste. And this checked up a lot of boxes for me. Absolutely. And I have a question. You know, I'm thinking back to a conversation that I had with astronaut Nicole Stott, mm-hmm. who was a guest on the podcast. And in her post-NASA career, she's working as an artist and talking about the concept of STEAM. So instead of normal STEM, adding art into the process. So when I hear you say, I was an art history major and studied French in college, and now you're plunked in the middle of a community after a storm and having to figure out all of these logistics, what was that experience like for you? I mean, are those skills and muscles that were toned for you or were you literally like okay I've got to pick up the 600 pound dumbbell today and figure out how to do this <laughs> well I've always been resourceful so I think studying art history and French definitely taught me how to use different parts of my brain at the same time <laughs> but ah, um, and just to assimilate information how to research perhaps less than what I studied in college after I graduated, I started working with architectural salvage, uh, bought a house when I was 23. I'd saved up money. Um, Whoa, go and <laughs> I uh, was not living that kind of life at 23. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, well, I was working in this architectural salvage place in Portland, Oregon, and I needed to move out of a house that I was renting because it went on to the market. And people that I worked with who many of them who flipped houses, suggested that I try to buy it. And I didn't know how, so they introduced (laughs) me to a realtor and a lender. And I didn't buy that house, but I had a lot of support and was able to find a really cheap, small Victorian home for $106,000. Which um, probably felt like a million at 23, right? Right. (laughs) I borrowed 500 bucks from my dad, and then I had saved up, you know, uh, a fair amount from working after college and was able to buy this house. And so beyond wanting to do something that wasn't set design and prop styling, um, renovating that house, selling it, and then buying a crack house in Brooklyn, (laughs) (laughs) which I renovated with a friend of mine using traditional building materials and ended up feeling really sick afterwards uh, left me with a desire to understand like natural building techniques um, and work with natural materials. So I have a construction and building sort of 
a self-taught or you know had a great community of friends that would just work for beer and pizza to teach me <laughs> how to do things but I've kind of from an early age put myself into situations where that may have been a typical one for a woman where I wasn't afraid to just learn on the job that can take a sense of humility and being humble I think to be so willing to have a beginner's mind. And it sounds like that's something you've been really comfortable with your your whole life. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's a fair statement? I think so. What do you think has allowed you to be so comfortable in that state of sort of, okay, I'm going to learn something new. I'm going to be messy and I'm going to thrash around in this <laughs> and I'm going to have to figure this out. And my friends who are eating pizza and beer around me are probably going to look at me sideways and think, what is she doing? How do you stay energized in that state? Because I know some women listening have worked really hard to pull together all of these skills and creds. And then when faced with being new in something are sort of terrified by that. Like the Mm -hmm. idea of pivoting their career and having to pick up these new skills are really scary. Well, I think it's, for me, it's important to learn non-attachment and to live life with a beginner's mind or a learner's mind. Like, I love learning. I've always loved learning. And I think growing up uh, with a single mother uh, who made me a dollhouse when I was four, you know, from like from oh a, in a woodworking God. class. And just, you know, for, I had an example early on that you could make things you know, like by hand with love. And that was formative. And that resourcefulness of, you know, making beautiful things with when you don't have a lot of resources. I think I've always been kind of a scrapper in that way. Uh, Yeah, I think just having that curiosity and the fear and doing it anyways. It's not fearlessness. Like I'm right terrified all the time, (laughs) frankly. But um, especially working around power duels. (laughs) I've seen your shop. It's kind of a little shop of horrors to the uninitiated. Mm. Well, I think that that um, I, I guess I'm not afraid of power tools. Now I'm more afraid of the weight of things as I get older and less strong. But, <laughs> but the machinery to me is less scary. I have also in the last probably 10 to 12 years been studying like consciousness. And in that I have realized that a certain amount of the things that I've chosen to do also has come from a proving that I can do things as well or better as a man you know, growing up with a single mom, that I can take care of myself. And um, there's, I think, a healthy amount of self-sufficiency and um, curiosity and bravery that comes with that. And then it's separating that from the pushing against um, that comes with the proving. Like, that doesn't really serve me or anyone else. What do you mean when you say pushing against? For me personally, and I think it's a pattern in our culture, sometimes strong women are strong because they don't allow for vulnerability. So it's um, kind of pushing away where it may behoove me to allow support. What I'm taking from what you just said is 
there's a different energy when you say, I don't need no man, versus the energy of, I can be self-reliant. Mm-hmm. Like, the net-net is sort of the same, but the connotation from each place is totally different. Does right. that make sense? Exactly. Is that kind of what, is that the itch you're trying to scratch? You nailed it. Okay. <laughs> like, I think I know where you're going here. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, my industry is 95% men. So it's... Yeah, you um, must be a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhat. Yeah. I mean, there... Is it mostly men? It is mostly men. There are more and more women woodworkers. I've met... Actually, I haven't met her, but there are a couple other female sawyers. Um, a sawyer is one who saws. <laughs> I get as asked opposed that. to Tom Sawyer painting fences. <laughs> not to be confused. It is a really beautiful and supportive industry. The women that are part, you know, that are woodworkers are are in the the wood products industry. I find that we um, share information easily, but like men and women, you know, like the community here in Kingston is really incredible. The makers and woodworkers, for the most part, it's like if you need a cup of sugar, <laughs> like they, um, I have several people I can call that I know have my back, which feels really good. But as a woman in this industry, it's interesting. Um, in some ways, it's a benefit. I find that more on the materials acquisition side, like dealing with other mills and buying wood and perhaps with other makers that the men that I've worked with are overall very generous with their information and perhaps more so because I'm a woman and because they feel less competitive or less confrontational. The downside to that is I think it's just tricky because of in our culture often women are daughters, mothers, or objects. And to be taken seriously for what I do and the artistry and the craft and the skill that we have, it feels ambiguous sometimes. I'm not always sure what other people's motivations are. And that can bother me sometimes. I try not to get my ego too involved in it and just do the work. Um, that's again like where the pushing back can I think come in going back to that mm -hmm. where if I feel like somebody else's intention isn't honorable I can get internally upset and then it's a question of like is it worth continuing to work on that project I feel like we're in a time where male female dynamics are incredibly sensitive and, and shifting and shifting fast it's hard to know how to navigate certain situations. And in an industry that is predominantly male, um, you know, as a woman, I sense sort of a tension on both sides of people being cautious in the way that they relate to me more so than they did before, which I actually appreciate. Mm -hmm. um, but it does make for a certain level of discomfort. Yeah. I think what you're saying is interesting because it's been almost a decade since I've been in any sort of corporate work environment. But early in my career, I started out with PricewaterhouseCoopers and was working in trouble debt restructuring and bankruptcy. And that environment is incredibly hostile. It's long hours. 
And at the end of the day, I mean, they're putting a bunch of male and female 20-somethings. They're basically throwing us in a pressure cooker. It was constantly something that I felt like I had to navigate earlier in my career. And I was a first-generation college student. So, like, I went to college and I thought, well, what I can get from the books and from the professor and get into my head will be all that I need. And then I got to the firm, and I remember even when I did an internship between my junior and senior year, just getting a small taste, but it was very, we were very coddled because they wanted us to, after senior year, agree to work with us because they always had so much turnover. They wanted Mm -hmm. us in the system, right? They wanted bodies with pulses (laughs) to be able to use Excel. And I think I wasn't ready or prepared for how much of what you're talking about that you have to navigate on a daily basis. And for me, some of the experiences were really intense. I mean, I remember having to pick up a rental car on the Upper West Side, drive around and get my three male coworkers, then drive, I think it was like an hour and a half to two hours in traffic way out in Long Island from the Upper West Side every day. Mm-hmm. with these three dudes and you know every friday on the way home sitting in traffic waiting to get back into the city after working like 14 hour days in a hostile situation that was largely all men you know i would have to sit there and listen to what kind of action they were going to get from the ladies that weekend and every monday was sort of the recap of what action did take place over the weekend so i mean my example's really extreme but i remember even just in meetings, like being confused for the secretary when I was a senior associate, you know, Mm -hmm. being told by old men, young lady, I'd like a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, I'm trying to get the deck ready to present. (laughs) Get your own damn cup of coffee. (laughs) And so these, these are really extreme. What I'm hearing you describe is often more subtle, where people are sort of aware now that there's, oh, we've got to be on our good behavior here. But even that recognition is still the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Mm -hmm. And not everyone has that much awareness. I'm still kind of like (laughs) up against like a lot of kind of the sexist comments and ignorance. I don't know. Like it's it's tricky to talk about because like I don't want to sound like I'm hating on men, you know, and like I know that this isn't. um, I think what you're describing is really real. I I think – whether it's finance, whether it's (laughs) the world of wood. I would imagine every single guest I've had on the show in some way, shape, or form has had to deal with Mm -hmm. and figure out how to work around these situations. Thinking about what you're saying, do you have any advice for women listening that may be in a situation like this? Do you have any things that have really been successful for you like when you're getting mansplained in the moment or whether you're getting called honey when you go pick up like (laughs) you know stain for something that you need to make what has helped you navigate around some of these situations and what has helped you not get depleted by them right because i think that's Mm -hmm. two pieces like Mm -hmm. we can't change the entire culture ourselves but then how do we not burn out because Mm -hmm. of it yeah, I mean, for me, it's just having compassion and realizing that we're all a product of the culture where, you know, for the last thousands of years, 
it's been a patriarchal society and like very quickly we're being challenged to shift our perception of male and female dynamics and like our roles that we play and how we relate to one another and having the patience and understanding that it's going to take some time realizing that has really helped me and being very clear on my mission I'm in service to a larger thing like my passion is um, how do we conserve forests you know with climate change we need trees now more than ever there's also more trees falling over and dying than ever that creates more challenges for municipalities like how can I contribute to the shifting of the industry to one that's more regenerative and focusing on that instead of, you know, where I may have previously felt belittled or condescended to or objectified. It's really not important in the grand scheme of the work that I'm, I feel called to do. How do you stay rooted to that in the moment? Like, I feel like, and we've talked about this, like, I've been on, like, a couple-year journey of really meditating every day and seeing where that creeps in. And it's never overt. You know, it's these small moments where my husband Craig shot me with the, you know, the water gun attached to the sink. Mm-hmm. Like he went to pick it up and squeeze it at the same time. And it sort of blew cold water over his shoulder, but like right into me, like first thing in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I feel like like those are the kinds of moments where I see having a mindfulness practice has really served me. Because I think the old me that's, and I'm definitely a fiery personality. The old me would have just been like, WTF, Craig? Like you just <laughs> shot me with cold water in the first thing in the morning in the middle of winter. After a couple years of really dedicating time every day to meditating and being more mindful, it was strange. Like when that happened, I literally thought, how do you want to react? And it was a split second. And I don't know whose voice that was that I heard because sometimes I don't even think it's my Mm -hmm. own. I was able to slow everything down and I ended up just sort of laughing about it and kind of just rolling my eyes. I did think after that though about shooting him back but (laughs) but that's another story but I was able to keep the situation contained Mm -hmm. do you feel like as you've been studying consciousness more like has that helped you in those moments like kind of come back to okay that was a shitball interaction with that person the real reason and the real thing I need to stay rooted to is the larger goal right Yeah, I think there's two things in that. Like, one, not taking oneself too seriously. Um, Whereas, like, that reaction to be like, WTF, (laughs) and get angry. (laughs) But to have the the wherewithal to observe and just, like, see it for what it is and let it go, that's an art. And I I applaud you for that. (laughs) Thank you. It took a lot of work (laughs) to have that one moment. (laughs) Yeah, meditation is great. Like that has helped me immensely in being able to respond instead of react. And then the second part of that is to also know when to address something. And my tendency in the past has been more to just eat it 
and just shut down turn away like not address the thing polar opposites <laughs> mine is like let's take this on <laughs> yeah i'm a pacifist um i'm so non-confrontational and i'm learning to actually just address the thing so it's not lingering um and uh i find that it just like i feel better it doesn't you know especially in with people that i interact with on a regular basis um, being able to put that in the space and, you know, have that nonviolent communication of when you do this, I feel this way. You know? <laughs> Such a powerful statement. It feels so awkward and bumbly to use it first, I think, mm. for a lot of people. Or it sounds very like, does every moment in life then feel like a therapy session? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like, when you do this, I feel this. But there's a time and a place where you're not pointing a finger. It doesn't put someone else on the defensive the kind of language and communication you're talking about is really assertive. And that can be scary, If I'm sure, if you're someone who's used to like, I'm just going to let this slip past. I want to applaud you and celebrate what you're doing because being able to speak to someone's behavior and then create the space to then flesh out what the real problem is, is really powerful. Because something I witness in a lot of the private conversations that I have with women who are burning out or have successfully burnt out <laughs> is how much energy is spent on two things. One is not saying no, and the other is not communicating openly and honestly like you're describing. And what I mean by that is you mentioned how much that would consume you later. Like you mm -hmm. would just kind of fester on it. I imagine there was a lot of rumination happening. <laughs> a lot of, um, I picture like the scene in Bridget Jones's diary, the movie, where she rewrites how she wishes scenes went down in her head. And they kind of like, they film it. And then they sort of film the alternate scene right after it and show <laughs> like, you know, with notes on the bottom, like, this is how I wish the conversation went down. <laughs> and we all have those thoughts, right? Mm. I think it's really powerful that you have learned how to speak to that more instead of wasting all the energy on a moment that's actually already sailed by. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think a lot of it has to do with value and how one values oneself. Um, in the equation or um, in relationship to others. And I think that many of us, women especially, <laughs> are taught to please other people and to not be confrontational and essentially not to value ourselves above others, especially above men um, or as equals to men. And that's at least how I was, you know, raised mm -hmm. um, or like, the the culture that I came from and a muscle that's getting stronger that I've been you know <laughs> been lifting a lot of weights with that one <laughs> um, to just really truly love myself and um, and I find with that it's easier to just say you know like actually that doesn't feel good you know when you say this I feel this way and like you know like how can we talk differently because you know like I know that you're really trying that you're, you know, invested in what we're doing or you're trying to help or like I know that you're that I don't believe that's your, your intention. So just trying to have a rewrite with 
um, the ways that things may have shown up in the past and like and how how to create more room in the future for more possibility. This may be something you have an example in mind, but have do you have any stories of where you've seen this work really successfully? Like when you've taken that brave step and said to someone like, I'm not cool with this behavior mm. for whatever reason. Have you had an experience where that's really shifted things positively for you? I recently started a project and the person who hired me did confess some feelings for me. And I was able to say that a part of me was flattered and a part of me was confused to his intentions because I want any work that we do together to be based on um, what I bring to the table and not on his feelings. It felt inappropriate to be kind of put in the position to have to say that and also complicated because it's not like it hadn't crossed my mind like oh that person is really interesting I really enjoy like I feel like we have great conversations and we're on the same page with so many things and but I wasn't going to bring that to the table while we're working on something and so it it feels like a gray area because it's like if that crossed my mind, what am I bringing to the table that like is, you know, and then there's that, that whole guilt thing of, you know, am I perpetual, you know, did I bring this situation on myself? Oh, <laughs> Lordy, know, the age like, old question. Yes. Yeah. Or like, and, um, like what part of my psyche is creating this in my reality? Like what part of my psyche wants this attention? But once I received it there, instead of feeling excited, I just, I felt a sinking feeling in my body and learning to trust the body and what the information that it tells you, I find to be invaluable. Because if you feel uncomfortable in any situation, like trust it. Your gut tells you, that, you know, it's like there's a reason why people say to trust your gut. Like if you actually feel a certain way, investigate what that might be. And I think it's important to take that as information, either address it or like address it if it's appropriate and safe or perhaps not engage at all. I think what you're saying is important. It's something I've experienced myself. Like, you know, my story with IBS and literally my guts rotting out in my 20s. And I do believe and from what I've seen you know, with nearly another decade of conversations with women privately, our bodies are never going to send us a text message or an email. Like our stomach just doesn't pull out its iPhone and give us a clue what's up. It's never going to be so easily broken down for us. So you know when something's in alignment and something's not. Yes. And I, and we're in such, we live in such a logical society that, we feel like we need to have reasons for that feeling. You know, like, it's like, well, it may be telling, like, I may feel this way, but logically it makes sense for me to do this thing, so I'm going to do it. But for anyone to, like, actually trust that feeling and not feel like they need to defend it in any way, mm-hmm. um, that would be my advice to, like, any person listening to this podcast that, doesn't already have that practice 
is to just give yourself permission to listen and you know explore where that feeling may be com- might be coming from but to also just give yourself permission to not need to know or put it into words like if you are feeling a really visceral response i know a, a tangible example here when craig and i were deciding to leave western massachusetts and Craig really wanted to move to New York City again. And I had gotten very comfortable living in an 1830s farmhouse in Western Mass, and it was beautiful, and driving to my CSA once a week and having green space again after 11 years of living in the city and years of living outside of Boston before that. And I was recognizing some of the career changes he needed to make on his end, and it was sort of his turn to kind of take a step forward in his career. And we had been looking at this area. Like every time we drove between New York City and Western Mass, we would stop somewhere between Beacon and Kingston. And logically, I was like, okay, if Craig needs to be in the city five days a week, which may be a reality, we are going to have to move closer to the city for him to be able to hack that commute and us to have any semblance of personal life other than maybe like some time on Sunday or something. And as we were kind of going through all the facts and the data, you know me to be a a (laughs) highly analytical person who likes measuring things and quantifying things and rational explanations for things. How this really played out was, on paper, moving back to New York City looked like a good decision. And I think in Western Mass, I sort of was taking in all of the information and coming to the conclusion like, okay, let's at least look at apartments Let's start getting more information if that's the direction we're going to go, because that's how I think about things. And Craig and I went on a Saturday to look at apartments in the city and lined up a couple of them. And we got to the first one, and it was a brand new construction, and it was very pretty and lots of light and a, a nice apartment by New York standards like no weird, you know, bathtub in the kitchen or like, <laughs> you know, you have to take a shower in the sink or some, there's no windows, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. anything weird. And we got in this apartment and I remember the agent showing us the place. I remember his lips moving, but not a thing was permeating because everything in my being was screaming, you don't have to live here. You don't have to live in the city again. You don't have to live in this apartment. You don't have to do this. Mm -hmm. And I remember Craig looking at me and I think recognizing that I was having some sort of like existential (laughs) breakdown internally. He said, your face just like went blank. Like you just were somewhere else and kind of checked out. And when we got outside, like that was all I could hear was, you don't have to live here. You don't have to live in this apartment. You don't have to move back to the city. There, there are other ways. And it just kept repeating, and it was so loud. And I was like, yep, this is my body. Like, <laughs> as soon as we were in that apartment and in that situation, the decision was final. It overruled all of the data, all of the rationale, all of like, okay, we can make this work, or... It was like, this is not going to be good for me in Mm -hmm. any way, shape, or form to make this move, and it has to stop right here. Of course, that then 
puts major strain on her relationship <laughs> for a while where Craig and I had to duke it out over, you know, several like, months yep, of like, but we're, we were doing this. <laughs> yeah, there was certainly like, then we had to come back to the table and really compromise. But I imagine you've had lots of moments like that where you're like, this is just not the right move. Mm-hmm. What helps you stay connected to that feeling? Because I think you and I, who are very comfortable kind of being in our bodies and are, are pretty intuitive people overall, for people listening who that might be a challenge, what helps you keep that connection? Well, meditation really helps. Having the space just to, to listen. Um, being in nature. Um, but I find also... You know, we have so many identities within us that uh, crave certain things or want certain things that may not be in our best and highest good. And the tool that I actually appreciate is um, like pulling tarot cards <laughs> or having somebody else do that for me. I find that it gives me information beyond what I, like my personality wants, you know, um, that may be beyond what I may have conceived as possible. Um, I may be undercutting myself or um, may, I may be undervaluing myself in a situation. Like when it comes to pricing things, like I find it really useful because I think a lot of us um, don't charge enough for our goods and services. So to have kind of an outside source, just to look at what it might look like if, uh, if I made certain decisions. Um, so what does your process look like? Because I'm hearing you bring the conversation <laughs> from tarot cards to pricing, and that's huge. What does that look like? Uh, for me personally, I get a sense for what I think something should cost, and then I pull two cards on what it would look like to charge that amount, two cards on what it would look like to charge more, what, two cards on what it would look like to charge less. And I get a sense of, you know, like what it would be the most favorable. And I'm getting, you know, I've been in business for seven years now, so I have a pretty good sense of really what the value of my time is. And again, like with more self-love and, and my <laughs> and my personal value on the rise, like I'm not afraid to charge what my time is worth. There's also sometimes where I feel greedy and it's just like, no. <laughs> you know, like... Um, and then, you know, and then if I have questions on what the information, I can, I can always pull more cards. Or if it's something where I really want a third person, you know, like another person's perspective, because even when you're pulling cards for yourself, there can also, it's like, who's pulling those cards? You know, there could be just like the psyche's motives can show up in those cards. Having another person do that for me. Uh, for very, not for pricing, but for large decisions, I find really helps. So cool. And I outed myself with my pack of the wild unknown cards <laughs> a couple episodes <laughs> back. And I am still just totally a beginner in and kind of just pulling one card a day. Or if I find a question that I use a lot is just, what kind of energy do I need to bring to today? Mm -hmm. Or what kind of energy do I need to bring to this situation? And pulling a card just sometimes gives me the space. It gives me something to think about. 
mm-hmm. without being as intense as like journaling, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, I, I must go dissect myself on paper right now. But it just gives me a distance and a perspective from something. So I guess you've been an inspiration in terms of <laughs> finally like pulling the trigger on getting a pack of cards. So oh, I love you. hearing how <laughs> you're blending like something as we think of as such a hard skill, right? As like pricing and accounting and things like that. But then allowing room for intuition to be part of that process as well. Well, I think that that's perhaps like what having a yin business or what the like the feminine can bring to business is in broad strokes, I think a lot of women do have greater intuition and are are more attuned to like carrying the sacred in our culture. And so to incorporate those things into business, I I encourage people to do it. I think it's like we, I think we're shifting into a time that you know, it has more honor for the feminine and away from like, a, you know, we're seeing how like a linear way of doing things isn't really working for us you know like how the logical way of doing things actually may not be in the best and highest good like what is scientifically proven isn't necessarily humane scientifically proven in quotes you know like (laughs) the ubiquitous they says right (laughs) and i think that there's more humanity and intuition that can be brought into making larger decisions as a whole. We're recognizing that there's more um, feminine characteristics that bring great benefit to businesses and the way that business is done. And I think that part of that um, for some people, including myself can be incorporating the sacred. You raise a good point. I'm trying to remember where I saw the statistic. I feel like it was an article from Inc. that talked about how when companies diversify and bring, you know, around 30% women into the upper levels of management, companies saw a rise in profits. Mm -hmm. And I think we're at the beginning stages of really kind of starting to understand, like, well, what is it? that women bring, especially what do women bring when they're not trying to be men in the workplace. (laughs) And that was something I had to learn the hard way. Like, I'm probably a little bit more young energy anyways, but then being put into an environment where I was mostly working with men, it just, I'm surprised I didn't just start to like reek of testosterone. Like it just (laughs) took a lot of my natural energy or, or, inclinations and just sort of ratcheted them up to a place that was kind of ego and yucky. And I've had to really over the last, you know, 15 or so years figure out like, what is my feminine energy? Like, what does that even look like? Because it, you know, I think for the, my formative working years, it was, I was constantly trying to cover it up. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't like, taping my breast down at work by any stretch of the imagination, but I was constantly learning how to operate in business as a dude because that was the example around me. And often the women that were partners were rougher on other women Mm -hmm. than the male partners were. So it was easier to work under a male partner because there wasn't this weird 
rival energy. But then at the same time, I just had no idea how to be a woman in the working world. Mm-hmm. It gets messy. It gets complicated. <laughs> it's really complicated. <laughs> yeah, when, especially when you don't have a lot of role models for like how to be. I really hope that we live to see a time where it's like these conversations of polarizing, like, you know, what does it mean to be feminine? What does it mean to be masculine? And we can all just like learn to be like, you know, what is our nature? Like, what is your nature? Like everybody is a unique being and that we can kind of surpass these models of what things have looked like before to have a more authentic existence. There's more fluidity to gender and how that's being expressed at the same time that there's a hanging on tighter than ever to tradition. So it's this change is scary. Change is change is terrifying. And even when it's positive change, Mm -hmm. it's terrifying. I see this all the time in the work that I do Mm. where when women come to me because they want to make change I'm there to kind of ask a lot of questions, help design the process, help people stay accountable, really understand what are the things driving the change they want to make, right? I'm trying to understand someone's motivation. I'm trying to understand you're coming to me because you want to layer in these changes in your life, but you've got all these stakeholders that are fighting against you, you know, whether it be in the family unit or in the workplace, plus our own limiting beliefs and stuff and baggage that we carry around. And even though they are, you know, up at home plate pointing towards the outfield and the home run that they want to hit in terms of keeping themselves a healthier, happy person, it's terrifying. Like, even making that positive change, I mean, with some of my clients, takes multiple hours of conversation to really break it down to a point where they can see it enough to take that first step. Mm -hmm. Or it takes multiple crisis points to just like, to get to the place where you just have to surrender because you realize you're not in control of your life (laughs) anymore. (laughs) That was me. It was like, you know, it started with, I have heartburn all the time. Weird. And then just, you know, eating antacids. I could have probably just poured the tablets like out of the bottle into my face at any given moment. And then it went from that to migraines periodically. Mm. Then it went to, you know, having a good couple of panic attacks, you know, in the middle of the night while working on a project and not getting enough sleep and living on caffeine all the time. And then, you know, finally, when it got to the place of like, my bowels are really irritable and they are actually not cooperating with me in some social situations Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is a horrible experience but if you are a tenacious person in any way shape or form or you're you're focused on your goal your mission it can be really easy to sort of overlook those progressive signs that are getting worse like oh it's this is just independent of what i'm doing on the day-to-day right Mm -hmm. and the change is terrifying like sometimes it has to get beyond painful Mm -hmm. before people will act oh absolutely like the breakdown needs to happen before the breakthrough (laughs) (laughs) that's a great way to put it (laughs) i laugh but i think we've both been there i'm sure absolutely 
I feel like there's almost like this tempering into gold that's happening right now where it's just like this things are breaking down on a regular basis and it's just like like this reevaluate you know like we're all being challenged to reevaluate like what are our priorities like what are our passions like you know what do we value and um you know like how do we live together on this finite planet <laughs> and and just seeing like the grace in that and just as challenging as things are right now I mean, we're going through a lot of internal changes. Um, I was working to bring on a partner who had a health issue and now is somewhat unable and somewhat has chosen to not proceed with the partnership. The health issue came right before we were about to sign this contract and just like, you know, having this also someone else who can consciously address something and see that like this is happening for a reason like um and the timing of this Mm -hmm. is there's no accident to it and just really allowing or really trusting just the process and allowing whatever is supposed to fall away to fall away and just um make room for whatever it is in greater alignment to come in and in being in that middle ground is really challenging, like that not knowing, because we're like, you know, I, I always just like, I want, you know, I want the answers. I want to know. I want, like, I want stability. I crave stability. Yeah. And I don't think we're living in a time where stability is really present or possible. And everybody I know is going through something. Um, and just to really be able to let go and to have tools and resources um i mean for me it's just like it helps to have you know like a spiritual practice a meditation practice and just to like have the focus be on something that's bigger than i am you know both in my work and in my spiritual practice it helps to navigate these times where like knowing it just is impossible and i don't know that it's ever possible and i find Myself, as I'm listening to you, thinking about how many times, even just in the podcast conversations that I've had, where I think these are turbulent times, but (laughs) is there ever a time that's actually not Not turbulent? turbulent. I mean, I think it, it probably oscillates, right? There are times that are sustainably turbulent and then there are times where it just feels like everything is being ripped apart. And I mean, I think in the last... I don't know, year or so, it's been more of that. It's part of my work to recognize the changes in the environment, but I think that we're all working with this pressure that, like, um, our planet is changing so drastically and so fast, and, like, and that feeling of powerlessness that that creates in in ourselves and that, um, and the, like, almost a sense of helplessness and just, at times, I feel complete apathy because it's like, how do I, you know, like, who am I? to do anything about this who am I to like stand up to the social and uh, environmental challenges but those challenges do help me focus on on my values and what I'm passionate about and like the like the small piece that I can do refocusing on that helps me to get through just like the day-to-day like heaviness you know it's just I mean it might I'm gonna cry if I say this but (laughs) Um, I mean, not only like the environmental implications of, or you know, or not only the environmental 
benefits of what we do just with trees, but um, the way that we finish our wood, we use natural finishes like that have no VOCs. They smell like honey. Oh, my um, God. And they're, they're, they're beautiful. And sometimes we have commercial projects where we, um, where we hire a spray finisher to do kind of more robust toxic finishes because that's what the client requests. And I'm having this moral challenge right now because he's dying of pancreatic cancer. Oh, my Lord. And, like, you know, like, we, like, I can't say yes to that anymore. Even though, like, what we do requires a little more, it requires more maintenance, it requires more muscle um, on behalf of our clients to maintain it. Mm-hmm. But I believe we're living in a time where we really have to take responsibility for our choices on so many levels. And, and it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's overwhelming. I mean, <laughs> just having even cursory conversations with women about the kitchen and the bathroom and, like, you know... You throw everything away and start over, but then there's the environmental impact of that. You know, how do you kind of come to that place where you know it has to be healthier and it has to be better? And and the mind-boggling research that you have to do to even try to understand, like, what is this thing that we're eating or putting on our skin or using to clean our house Mm -hmm. or using to finish wood and the furniture that we sit on? Mm -hmm. And what are the impacts? I mean... It's. It makes me feel like crying some days. <laughs> mm. But that. Uh, but I also am so grateful to be doing the work that I'm doing because it's the closest model that I've come across is bes- outside of agriculture that has the potential to be regenerative, like truly regenerative. Like uh, we donate five percent of our profits back to planting trees so that we're continuing the cycle of life. You know, for every tree that we upcycle, there's one less tree that's being cut down to be used for lumber. And then my mission is to be wildly successful so we can have a greater impact in this industry. And I believe with every cell of my body that we will be. I'm, You know, and it's like times like these where I'm not sure how we're going to get there because there's just sometimes the obstacles seem insurmountable. But I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing, and I, um, I mean, I was a hipster from Brooklyn, that you know, <laughs> that worked in the fashion industry, and ended up running a sawmill, and you know, there was a consciousness of like, you know, like, you know, like, what does that look like? You know, <laughs> and that, how is that perceived? And um, you know, the the glamour around it. You know, it was around the time when lumber sexual was like, you know, still very much a thing. <laughs> it was actually before. So you were able to make like the perfect sartorial choices. <laughs> right. <laughs> Transition. Actually, into I preceded lumber sexual. The, the, the beginning of my business preceded lumber sexual. Um, <laughs> but it, it did dovetail with that time and just also not wanting to be that, like consciously not wanting to be that. It's just, you know, it's like, I think also just aging you know you get over 40 and you're just like "Eh." (laughs) Like, all right um you're just like i don't need to care anymore like i'm (laughs) like i'm i'm 
as one get past guest said, I'm officially out of fucks. <laughs> <laughs> there are no more left to give. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Precisely. That's a good one. <laughs> so, Megan, we have covered a lot of ground. And I, I so appreciate like just you telling us your story because I think it's such a fun and unique one in terms of like women having a role model in a field that we don't often see a lot of women. And I think that's important. And that's one of the things that really got me to take this show to where we are sitting here in a closet sized studio talking into microphones and lights blinking around us from pages in a notebook thinking it's one thing to talk about like I have a friend Megan she works in New York Heartwoods and she does all this amazing stuff for the environment and making people's homes beautiful and making retail stores beautiful and then actually getting to hear from the person mm-hmm. I think there's something really powerful that changes when, one, it's not just me yapping about people I know, but getting to hear from the source. Like, what is it like to do this work that you might not expect a woman to be in? Mm -hmm. Because I know when I first met you, I was just picturing, really, it's got to be all like Paul Bunyan-like dudes. Or (laughs) like, I just pictured old, crusty New England men. (laughs) like doing this work (laughs) like some old like hardened calloused like dude up in the wilds of vermont or in canada somewhere or in maine like taking down trees or or the person that would come pick up the tree that fell in your yard after a storm (laughs) so this is really powerful i i if this show does nothing else but give women inspiration to think about what they could be and that it's possible and also just you being willing to share some of the hops skips and jumps from going to point a to point b is also really powerful because i think sometimes and i know i'm guilty of this sometimes of thinking when i was a cpa like that would be what i would do for the whole rest of my life because how could i possibly train to do something else and make that big of a, a switch It was only through a health challenge and burning out completely and recognizing maybe there's a different way to plug my skills in. But mine is just one story. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's only so much we can learn from one story. But collectively, if we see women making changes bravely and going to do work that makes their hearts sing and makes the world a better place, that's incredibly powerful. And so I want to ask you one more question before we, we okay. hop off today. What do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know or to even take away from this conversation? I feel like we're all being called to do important work right now. And what that looks like for each person is so personal. But you know it when you feel it. Again, like when you feel it in your body, when you know... Like, you know, like what you're passionate about. Life is becoming increasingly precious as things feel more finite. And I encourage you just to put your heart into everything that you do. And if your heart's not in it, to do something else. 
powerful, <laughs> powerful, powerful information. Easier said than done, <laughs> certainly. <laughs> but I think a really important reminder for women listening. Megan, thank, thank you. you for all you do. Thank you for being here. And thank you for putting the heart in New York Heartwoods. Oh, thank you for having me, Kara. It was such a pleasure. <laughs> Hey, it's Kara again. I'm back. Thank you for tuning in. You can find any of the links or resources that we mentioned in this episode over at Le Vital Core Salon. L-E Vital C-O-R-P-S Salon.com. Did you dig this conversation? Do you dig what Megan's doing with New York Heartwoods? Please show your support. And one way you can do that is sharing this episode. And visit the New York Heartwoods website. Check out what she's doing. If you know someone who's interested or should know, share it. All of the links, again, can be found in the show notes. In one convenient place. Before I peace out for today, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to... Jimmy and Ida at Radio Kingston for letting me hang out in their space and record this podcast live with Megan. I want to thank my producer, Craig Snyder, my assistant, Darlene Victoria, and Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the awesome theme song. Don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you. <laughs>